Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This year marks a decade since the emergence of what's become known as the Movement for Black Lives. Obviously, racial justice activism existed long before an unarmed 17-year-old boy, Trayvon Martin, was killed by a gun-toting vigilante. But when a court of law declared that man did not commit murder, something changed. A focus on the value of Black life became central. So what's happened in the decades since? I'm Kai Wright, and we've partnered with our friends at the New Yorker Radio Hour to wrestle with that question. I'll talk with a group of people who have been working on police reform in varying ways over the past 10 years. And I'll check in with a youth organizer in New York whose own life was changed when Trayvon Martin was killed and this movement emerged. She'll tell me about what she's witnessed among young people who experienced a similar transformation as hers, but now following George Floyd's murder. When you hear the name George Floyd, what does that mean to you? A black man whose life was taken unprovoked. I think it represents a social movement and something that's inspired a lot of people and sparked a lot of change in many people's lives. It's an empowering name. When that event happened, it shocked the whole world. And um, I feel like it pushed us to be better, pushed us to be more demanding as a culture. I think like George Floyd is like more than just a name of a person now. I think it's more of like something that happened in our society. George Floyd is just one example of many people out there of countless names that I think have been forgotten. I really wish that we could remember all the names of victims to police brutality so they don't just become another statistic. It means a lot because it's been happening for decades and decades and decades and centuries actually. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. This year, 2023, marks 10 years since the movement for Black Lives emerged in the long wake of Trayvon Martin's killing and the impunity that law granted his killer. Our friends at the New Yorker Radio Hour have been looking back and asking, what has shifted in the politics and culture around police violence in those 10 years? And as part of that effort... I joined their show this week to lead a conversation about police reform. From a policy perspective, what, if anything, has changed? We'll share that conversation later this hour. But first, I also want to share a conversation I had with a young racial justice organizer whose life was fundamentally altered by the movement for Black Lives. Chelsea Miller was one of the lead organizers of the protests that erupted here in New York City in 2020 following George Floyd's murder. We met her as part of our Martin Luther King Jr. Day broadcast from the Apollo Theater, and I spoke to her again this spring. That's the discussion I'm going to share with you now. We talked right after she had an encounter with some middle school students that really shook her, and I asked her to tell me that story. Hi, and welcome back to the show, Chelsea. Hi, Kai. Thank you for having me. I'm definitely excited to be back. So you had, as I understand, an experience recently while talking to young people um, that was thought-provoking for you. Can you tell me that story? Tell me what happened. So in February, I actually went to a school in New York and delivered a keynote focused on, of course, Black History Month, but I think a larger conversation about the state of our current movement as it stands and what does racial justice look like and how do we reimagine equity? How do we reimagine our futures? And 
once the keynote was over, went to one of the classrooms and the students, you know, naturally had questions and wanted to know about activism and social change and how they can be a part of so many of these conversations. And really, I think just a curiosity for learning more, mm-hmm. right, about the history and what does this mean for their futures, right? And one of the questions that I asked them was, how many of you know about George Floyd? All of their hands went up. And then I asked, how many of you know about Trayvon Martin? And not a single hand was raised. Mm. And that was a moment of, of course, disbelief naturally for me, right? But then I had to think about it. And I think that we all have to think about it. Say, why is it that in a classroom full of middle schoolers, they don't know about Trayvon Martin? And then it hit me. Trayvon Martin was 10 years ago. Uh, To the parents of uh, Trayvon Martin. You know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Yeah. And so if we're talking about why a bunch of 13-year-olds wouldn't know about Trayvon Martin, whereas that was such a defining moment in my life and my journey and understanding how we show up in this world, for them, George Floyd was their Trayvon Martin, Mm. right? And so I think that it's important for us to think about the history of, of our movements and honestly where we are as a country and the fact that we are reaching right a generation that is losing so much of the history, even if it is recent history, right? And so what does that mean for the past 400 years that we have to reckon with? Yeah. there's so When I heard this story the first time, there's just so many things in it that caused me both emotional and intellectual confusion that, I don't know, I'm going to just try to wrestle with, with you for a minute. So one, like, why'd you ask them that? Like, what made, what were you, what was on your mind and heart when you asked it? Because I'm looking at students who, in a lot of ways, right? I'm young. I'm I'm in my mid twenties now, but I started my work in high school, right? And so I can remember the core memories that changed my life and my trajectory of how I see the world. And so when I asked them that, it was more so for connection, right? It was more so for the yeah, you guys know Trayvon Martin's name and I was basically your age when I lived it. And so that was kind of the direction that I was going in when I asked about George Floyd and then getting to Trayvon Martin because I was trying to connect that bridge right between the the 13-year-old version of, of myself mm-hmm. and there was that curiosity that came right. on their face because they didn't know. They didn't know right. about him. Right. They wanted to, but they didn't. How, were, how did they respond when you told them who Trayvon Martin was? Like, what are some of the responses that happened in the room? Um, They were shocked. They were curious. They wanted to know more. And, you know, I told them essentially the story, right, of, of, of what happened. This is what happened. On the night of February 26th, 2012, A 17-year-old black boy named Trayvon Martin was walking home from a convenience store in Sanford, Florida. He was a high school student in Miami, and he was in Sanford visiting his father and his father's fiance. He'd gone to the store to buy some juice and a bag of Skittles. George Zimmerman, a 28-year-old man who was in charge of the neighborhood patrol, saw Trayvon and decided he was suspicious. Zimmerman called the police, who told him to leave the boy alone. And instead, he took his gun and he stalked the 17-year-old child. I have always admired the fact that Trayvon confronted this depraved stalker when he realized he was being followed. But Zimmerman, he shot and killed the boy on the spot. Skittles and the hoodie Trayvon wore that night became cultural symbols in the national protest movement that followed. George Zimmerman was charged with second-degree murder. He pled self-defense under Florida's stand-your-ground law, and a jury found him not guilty. Three Black women launched the Black Lives Matter movement in response, and Chelsea Miller has never been the same. And I'll never forget my teacher who literally set aside time. It was my history teacher. She set aside time before class. I was only, I think, about um, one of three Black students in the class, you know, and was like, how are you guys feeling? Hmm. 
we need to talk about this. All of those things that happen that, that first of all, to this day, literally, I, I love this, this teacher, um, Mrs. Volpe, if you're listening. And I also think that for me, it was important to realize that classrooms should be places for us to talk about the issues that are happening in our world that will define their leadership and define their journey. And we have a responsibility to bring that into how they see the world, right? And how they talk about it um, because they care. They care, right? They care a lot. But if there aren't safe spaces to have these discussions, then what? When you say it was such a, you, you'll never forget that moment. Can you just describe like, do you remember like how you felt and like why you felt that way um, when your teacher was like, let's talk about this? Um, do you remember what mm-hmm. your emotional response was? I was, I was so sad. I was so sad because I didn't fully understand it yet, right? Um, But also keeping in mind that my teacher was not Black. She wasn't, she's not a Black woman. And so for me, that was also powerful because you have to keep in mind that in a lot of our school settings, you'd be surprised how many Black students are being taught by, of course, non-Black teachers. And so it's a certain level of trust that happens when educators see their students. And I don't mean when it's time for a test. I don't mean when it's time for state exams. I don't mean when it's time to submit your homework or talk about, you know, whatever you're learning about in the classroom. Talk about when you feel seen, right, and all that you are by a teacher. And that's what happened in that moment when she said, we're going to pause because it is not business as usual. And I know that you guys have questions and are feeling confused. And I want to give space to honor that. Here's the teachers. That's how important of a moment was that for your life, you know, and now look at all the things you've done. Um, Here's the teachers. Yeah. And so coming back to your experience recently, talking to those middle schoolers about Trayvon Martin, what did it make you think about your own journey in you know, the decades since that time? For so many Black people, we don't get to navigate our childhoods in ways that are completely free. Right, we are always feeling attached to something, responsible for something. Mm. Right, stories that are connected to us, and so, in a way, it made me think about the past ten years, right, if not more, of my own work and coming of age story, and this realization that it's like we don't afford our young people in this world, right, to live truly in a way that speaks to all of who they are, because whether or not we realize it, this world puts limits on them. And so I think that in a lot of ways, when we talk about our history, it's to get to a point where we start claiming those narratives for ourselves and using it as our strengths. It's Notes from America. I'm talking with youth organizer Chelsea Miller, who helped lead the protests that erupted in response to George Floyd's murder three years ago on Memorial Day. Coming up, Chelsea and I wrestle with how and why we can find strength in remembering the names and the stories of George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and the depressingly long list of other Black lives that have been taken in acts of anti-Black violence. And I ask her about my own growing uncertainty with this particular political act. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. My name is Rahima, and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. 
Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with youth organizer Chelsea Miller. We first met Chelsea during our Martin Luther King Jr. Day event at the Apollo Theater here in Harlem this winter. Recently, she told our team about an interesting experience she had. While talking with a class of middle school students, she discovered that they'd never heard of Trayvon Martin, which really shook her. Because Trayvon's death in 2012 and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, it not only gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement, it ignited Chelsea's personal desire to become a youth activist. I told Chelsea that I, too, was, of course, deeply, deeply affected by Trayvon Martin's killing, but in a little different way. Because by that point, this was already a crushingly familiar tale to me. When Trayvon Martin happened um, was, like, I think the turning moment for of exhaustion for me. Yeah. And I remember how exhausted and over it all I felt by that point. So I'm immediately, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, for you, it was a starting point. It's almost where I started to lock up and be unable to continue to respond mm-hmm. a decade ago. And for these young people wow. you're talking to, had never even heard of it. And I don't, I don't have a question here other than like, that's the immediate thing I came to. And I just want to put that to you um, and see what it sparks. Yeah. I mean, it, it sparks a certain level of, I wouldn't even say frustration, but it's more so I think a responsibility, right? That, that we have. And I think the weight of that, because if we're talking about for, me, right, thinking about Trayvon Martin and when it happened, you know, I was still very young. I couldn't go out and protest. I couldn't really do anything because I needed, you know, parental approval. And, you know, at the time, my mom's like, no way. And so (laughs) for me, I just think about how defining that was in my life and how it shaped me. (laughs) And so when we ask, and I remember, you know, when we had our sit down at the Apollo and Mm -hmm. he said, you know, what is the legacy of 2020? And I told you, I was like, I think that we aren't going to be able to measure it for another 10 years. Because think about all of the young people who witnessed that, who are now mobilized. And so when we're talking about George Floyd 2020, we won't see, right, fully the impact and legacy of that for years. And so I think for me, it's like, okay, in that interim, as they are still being shaped by the story and so deeply impacted by it, how are we creating stories? How are we telling narratives? How are we building the infrastructure to support them as they come of age, right? Because we're talking about a huge population of young people who are waiting and are ready to take on the baton. And what is the foundation that we're setting for them? And so I think for me, it's just like, we have work to do. Yeah. We're, we're thinking about this conversation in the context of remembering and memorializing. Um, and so another thing that really I had complicated feelings and thoughts about when I heard this story is part of me, Chelsea, when I heard they didn't know who Trayvon Martin was, was like, good. You know, mm. was like, good that they don't have that trauma. They don't have that that Black death to remember. I have such a long line of black death to remember. And um I like I don't feel like good, but like at this yeah. but part of me was like, I'm I'm glad they don't. Yeah, I I get it. I get why you feel that way, but they have the legacy of that to reckon with, even if they don't know his name. And I think that that is the most difficult part to 
essentially just process, right? As much as we want to protect them from what this world looks like and the truths of our systems that have failed us time and time again, I think we have to understand that they are seeing it. Even if they can't name it, even if they don't know the origin, even if they're still struggling to process it internally and see how they fit in the world, they are feeling every single aspect of what it means to navigate this world in their Blackness. And it's important, right, for them to know that before there was a George Floyd, there was a Trayvon Martin before, there was a Trayvon Martin, right, there was an Emmett Till before, 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 so that they don't feel alone when they're going through these things. And they know that there are generations that have come before them that have so much to teach them, right? But also a legacy even beyond just trauma, but of resistance, of joy, of all of these things that have existed historically, that they are part of that tradition, right? And I think that in a lot of ways, that is something that can empower them, right? And so I think it's one of those things where you just think about the experience of being a teenager and how lonely and isolating and feeling as though, you know, adults don't understand you, no one understands you, the world doesn't understand you. But I think there's a missing piece of how we tie generations together um, through a shared history, even beyond the trauma that I think is yeah. is worth talking about. When you talk about the sort of legacy of resistance and joy, that shifted something for me in thinking about these memories. Um how do we memorialize that? Um, do you see us memorializing that? How would we memorialize that? I think that we memorialize it by remembering that, yes, Trayvon Martin is no longer here, but his mom is, and she is a fighter, right? And we talk about even Emmett Till and the way that his mother showed up for him. And so we're talking about mothers of the movement. We're talking about even Eric Garner's mom, you know, just so many mothers, right, who have shown up. And so I think that from a legacy standpoint, their legacies still live on, right? And the young people who they've inspired and the changes that are being created and not even looking at it from a policy and systemic lens, right? Because we know that it's going to take so much more. But if we're talking about in the energy and the ways that people's minds have shifted and the ways that communities have come together and the ways that we have completely transformed, right? How we see ourselves, outside of these systems, I absolutely think that's worth memorializing. And I think it starts with telling the stories. I think it starts with telling the nuances of the stories to talk about our power and our creativity and the ways that we've existed and shifted culture, even in the midst of all of these things, right? And to me, that is a powerful story that we can carry on of movements, right? Of protests, but also of the fun, of the celebration. And so I'm excited right for for that aspect of our storytelling to really take hold into our future generations so that not only is there a sense of pride but an understanding of our humanity as a whole but do you feel any complexity in the way we have focused on these individuals and their names and their moment of death as the starting point for all that sort of incredible mobilization you're talking about I mean, I guess that's what I'm wrestling with when I think about those middle school kids you spoke with, like it, it, focusing on these moments of death. It, am I being yeah, articulate so, here? You know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm trying yeah, to figure no, absolutely, out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in answer to that, when I say their stories and their names, I don't mean their deaths, right? I, I mean their lives. I mean their legacy. I mean the people who love them. I mean the ways in which their community showed up for them. Mm-hmm. I mean the little things, right? I, I don't mean the the nine minutes of the of the chokeholds or or the um criminalizing of of who they are the criminalizing of their bodies i don't mean any of that i literally mean their stories right their names 
because they were given their names when they were born mm. and is the same names that we say. And so I think that there's an element here of how do we remember our people, right? Because also thinking about the legacy of slavery, when we were taken, we were stripped of our names. We were stripped of our identities. We were stripped of belonging, right? And we had to redefine that. And so when I say their names and their stories, it's because that is their birthright. Their names are their birthright. And so we say their names because there's power in that, right? And carrying that on so that they aren't forgotten and those stories aren't forgotten because we know that historically that the greatest way that we were conditioned was in removing those stories from us. And now that we have that, we should fight for that. You know, and so when I think about the 60s and the fact that there weren't, right, iPhones that you could take out and use to record. And so a lot of the information was passed down through intercommunity, right? And that storytelling aspect, when you talk about even, you know, what took place during the slave trade and you talk about what took place when slaves came here, the Underground Railroad, all of that was through stories, right? Stories that we had to hold on to, to believe. And so a lot of that history within our communities is so critical to how we define our own narratives and how we shape them and how we pass that on to next generations. Because if we forgot Emmett Till's name, Emmett Till sparked the civil rights movement, right? The work of his mother, the relentless work of his mother to shift the way that the world saw her son, right? And so all of that ties into storytelling. That's right. And so when I think about Trayvon Martin, when I think about George Floyd and the, and the legacy of George Floyd, I want to ensure, right, and I think we all have a responsibility to ensure that we are tying the way that we speak about them, that we're tying the way that we speak about memorializing into larger conversations of our liberation that, again, exist even outside of the trauma because Black people, Black children deserve rest. You know, we deserve joy. We deserve all of those things. And it's important to show in our history that we have had all of those things in spite of. For, and for yourself, do you remember when you when and how it sort of dawned on you? Like, oh, remembering these individual human beings and how they lived, this is an important political act for me. It dawned on me in 2020. And the reason that I say that is because I remember just being home and watching the way the media was talking about George Floyd. And so as I saw that, you know, let's investigate his his priors and, and does he have a record and is he even a great father and all these questions that were being asked when in that moment, what was the most important thing was the fact that he was a man who deserved to live. Right? It was that simple. And somehow, in the midst of these conversations, the true story was being missed. And if we allowed that to continue, then we would lose the battle before it even got to the courtroom. We would lose. Because as much as we want to say that the way that we see the world doesn't matter once we enter a judicial and legal system, we know that is a lie. As much as you want to protect a jury and make sure that there is no bias at all once you enter the courtroom, we know that that is a lie. And we know it's a lie because we've seen the way in which our criminal system has failed Black folks time and time again. Stories matter. And given that, I asked Chelsea about the public narrative surrounding Jordan Neely, yet another Black person killed in public in senseless circumstances. He was choked to death on a New York City subway train by a passenger who felt threatened. Neely was a performer who was living on the streets, struggling with mental health, and shouting on that train that he needed help. I mentioned to Chelsea that relative to previous stories, it seemed to me like the narrative around Neely's death shifted quickly from questions about what he did to bring it on himself to who he was as a human being. I asked how she felt about the narrative. 
I would say that it has been a battle. Even though it seems as though we have gotten to a point where, you know, there's a lot of corrective work that's happening around how we speak about him and how we speak about what took place. The reality is that there is still a huge influx that is pushing back against that, right? And so it saddens me the fact that we have to fight so hard for him to be seen as human, right. you know? And, and it's so interesting because right. in, in one aspect, we know the playbook. We've seen it so many times. But in another aspect, we also have to realize that the playbook has worked so many times. And that is the frustrating part. And it's also one of those things where you'd be surprised how many folks who rallied behind George Floyd are quiet about Jordan Neely. Oh, really? You feel right? that? Because there's a, it's kind of like a, a certain level, right? In which I'll, I'll advocate for this, but hmm, did they say he did so-and-so a couple days prior? I think I'm going to be quiet on this one. And I think... What we fail to realize is that we are not solely advocating for individuals. We are advocating for larger problems that must be addressed. Otherwise, there's always going to be a name. There's always going to be an individual. And so it's frustrating. I think that there's a huge challenge in who our communities show up for and why. And I also think that there's another element here that a lot of people don't realize that in 2020, the world shut down. And so because the world shut down, a lot of people were paying attention in ways that historically they haven't before. The challenge of organizing for Jordan Neely three years later is that the world is on full throttle. And so what happens when you are in the midst of protest for someone that others may not deem as worthy when the capitalist engine is on full throttle, do you think that the folks who maybe had some time or, you know, were thinking about and reckoning with even their own humanity during a pandemic is thinking about someone yeah. who is homeless, experiencing mel- mental illness on New York City subways? It's not the same anymore. And I think there's also an element of, you know, you shut down a bridge, right, as as a protester. You know, these things happened in 2020 where protesters were shutting down bridges across the country, right? And it was okay at the time. Um, And when I say it was okay at the time, I don't mean that arrests didn't happen. And I'm talking about the public imaginary of what protest looks like for so many folks who believe in, you know, advocating for Black lives. They were rallying that on. But what happens now when you believe in, in fighting for Black lives, but you're on your way to work and a bridge gets shut down. Are you still able to show up for that movement in the same way you were able to show up for it in the comfort of your home? Or now is it too personal? Chelsea Miller is co-founder of Freedom March NYC, a youth-led civil rights organization that emerged as a key player in the global protests that followed George Floyd's murder. Ten years ago, when the man who killed Trayvon Martin was acquitted on murder charges, Chelsea was just a middle school kid. But the movement touched her in fundamental ways and shaped the rest of her life. This week, we are partnering with our friends at the New Yorker Radio Hour to look back on the decades since that particular movement began. And coming up, I'll share a conversation I had on the Radio Hour about police reform over the past decade. What, if anything, has changed? That's next. This is Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, the Science Friday team has been reporting high-quality science and technology news, making science fun for curious people by covering everything from the outer reaches of space to the rapidly changing world of AI to the tiniest microbes in our bodies. Audiences trust our show because they know we're driven by a mission to inform and serve listeners first and foremost with important news they won't get anywhere else. And our sponsors benefit from that halo effect. 
For more information on becoming a sponsor, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Ten years into the movement that emerged following Trayvon Martin's horrific killing, there's a simple question you could ask. Has there been any measurable change in addressing police violence and abuse? The answer is not simple. There have been many, many efforts at fixing this problem, but we're going to dig into three specific areas of reform. Transparency, accountability, and just tracking the problem. We gathered three experts who come at these challenges from slightly different angles. Anya Bidwell is an attorney for the Institute for Justice. Mike White is a professor of criminology at Arizona State University. And Samuel Sinyangwe is the founder of Mapping Police Violence and Police Scorecard. Samuel was in his 20s, working at a nonprofit that focused on economic and social equality when Trayvon Martin was killed. And he was used to having access to all kinds of data in his work. So when he decided to shift his attention to addressing police violence, he did it by building a national database to actually track the scale of the problem. I asked him what overall he's found in his data since then. So... uh over the past 10 years and from 2013 um, through the present, what we can say is that police kill about 1,200 people every single year. And that that didn't start when the national conversation became focused on police violence. It's something that that has happened at a remarkably regular and constant pace, about 1,050 and 1,250 people. And this is a remarkable every, number. Uh, absolutely. And it's about three, more than three people every single day. Um, what we also know when we unpack the data is, is how deeply systemic this issue is. We have a system of 18,000 different law enforcement agencies, each with their own uh, set of policies and practices, their own department culture. Uh, some have more or less funding, more or fewer employees. Um, that constellation of 18,000 agencies every single year kills a similar number of people. The patterns are remarkably similar year after year as well. Black people are about three times more likely to be killed than white people per population. Uh, Latinos killed between 1.5 and two times uh, at higher rate than white people per population. Native Americans also killed a similar rate uh, as, as black people. So again, much higher than white people. I want to get Anya and Professor White into this part of the conversation too. And Anya, you are you were nodding uh, fiercely uh, at as Samuel described the state of the data, how bad the data was um, and has been. What is the lived consequences of that? What does that mean for like the work you do, not having information like that? You know, uh, Justice Brandeis once famously said that sunlight is the best of disinfectants. Um, and transparency really is extremely important in those types of situations. And I don't think it's surprising that in many controversial topics, we don't have good data, right? For example, Second Amendment and the use of guns, that's another area where it's very hard to actually find the data. For us as lawyers, it is much easier to, uh, you know, file complaints, file class action lawsuits, uh, have uh, allegations in the complaint that are backed by data, that's a much stronger lawsuit that can take you uh, much farther, even though there still will be other doctrines that we'll talk about that will still make it difficult. Professor Mike, why is that the case? Why why don't we have a centralized uh, system for collecting data from, from the federal government? You know, there is an effort now to create a national level uh, use of force database. The FBI is leading that effort. It started, I believe, in 2019. Uh, it is voluntary. Um, you know, one thing I think we do need to keep in mind is that each year there are, there are more than 50 million encounters between police officers and community members across the United States. More than 50 million. The vast majority, vast majority of those encounters begin and end peacefully, and not. All of those police killings are excessive, inappropriate, unlawful uses of force. And so with that context in mind, Samuel, um, there's been a decade of activism and greater public conversation about this at at minimum. Um, There's been a decade of someone like yourself saying, well, let's track this. Um, 
Is there anything that we can point to in your data that says, okay, well, this is getting better? Um, or no? As Michael said, you know, this is something that policing is, is much broader than um, than those twelve hundred incidents. Um, there are between six and ten million arrests uh, made every single year, and we do see some important shifts in terms of overall uh, police contact and enforcement um, over the past decade. Um, particularly, there, there's been a, a, a substantial reduction in arrests, particularly arrests for lower level nonviolent offenses. And you know this is important because you know when we consider you know six to ten million arrests, I mean that's a lot of people. Um, if you have an arrest record, that impacts your ability to to get a job. It impacts your ability to get housing. It impacts a, a range of opportunities for you. It, it often results in incarceration, which has its own uh, negative health effects. Um, and so, uh, reductions in arrests overall, particularly for low level offenses, have across the country over the past decade they were accelerated um, during the pandemic. Um, but have really been concentrated in some of the largest cities of, in the country. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. Right. It's to fund the police. Um, and so much of that money is focused on stops and arrests um, and, and police activity and enforcement um, really targeted towards low-level nonviolent issues that are often associated with uh, crimes of poverty, um, issues of, of mental health and substance use, so drug possession, uh, loitering or vagrancy, off trespassing, um, crimes associated with sex work, um, so prostitution arrests, et cetera, um, have seen substantial declines across the country. Um, the cities that have made the, the largest reductions in arrests, particularly for low-level offenses, have also seen uh, some reductions in police shootings, both fatal and non-fatal, um, because there are fewer incidents that are uh, you know, often escalate. Because you know, there's just, there's just, yeah, there's, there's fewer opportunities to engage in the first place. Exactly. So, but speaking of the, of the number of arrests and the inner, in the engage, just the volume of engagement with police departments, one of the things that has come up in the, in the years since the Black Lives Matter movement uh, became part of the political conversation is body cameras. And so, uh, Professor Mike, can we start with you? Because you have studied this issue. Um, what actually were body cameras supposed to do? What was the argument behind body cameras? You know, many departments simply did it as a show of transparency. I can't tell you how many press conferences I saw of chiefs of police announcing the start of a body-worn camera program and saying, we're doing this because we've got nothing to hide. January 1st, 800 body cameras will be dispersed among You know, officers. simply, I don't want to be the next Ferguson. And, and then there was some early evidence that suggested if you deployed cameras, you would see reductions in use of force and complaints. There were a handful of studies that came out in 2013, 14, 15 that showed that. I think those were the primary drivers of the adoption. From all of those sort of different vantage points of people who, were th who said, okay, this is a good idea for me, what, what have we learned? You know, the, it, it depends on which outcome you're focused on. The studies on use of force are much more mixed. Uh, again, about 30 studies, and only only half of those studies show a reduction in use of force uh, after cameras are deployed. So, for me, the big takeaway is that you're not going to see one story. The you know the the starting point of a police department is is extraordinarily important. Is it a department in trouble, and this is why they're deploying cameras? Or is the department professional? Uh, and they're respectful in their, their contacts with community members. They hold their officers accountable. And this is just one more thing they're doing to, to maintain that level of professionalism. So I think- well, To spell out, like, why does that, what is the distinction there in terms of what happens then? Um, you know, if it matters, which makes sense to me, it matters how they come into it. What are the, how do the outcomes vary based on whether they come into it? If, if a department is in trouble. So for example, the- um, you know, the, the Rialto Police Department of California was the first to um, to not only deploy cameras, but to rigorously study those cameras. And, and they showed immediate significant reductions in use of force. But that department was in significant trouble. I mean, there was some discussion about whether that department was going to get shut down by the Rialto City Council. And you have a reform chief come in who does a bunch of things, including de deploying the cameras. Compare that to the Washington, D.C. Metro Police Department. Um, when they did their study, they didn't document any impact on use of force, but the DC Metro Police Department had been under consent decree for a decade before they deployed cameras. So 
the the consent decree that was in place, the federal monitor required significant organizational change and improvement over a period of 10 years. Not surprisingly, they don't see a big reduction in use of force because I think all of the things that happened over the, the prior decade, that department was in a much better place organizationally when they deployed cameras versus a department like Rialto. But of course, we know that even with cameras, accountability for officers who behave recklessly or deliberately abuse people can be very hard to get. And I guess the fundamental question behind all of this is that if the goal is to simultaneously reduce crime, keep the public safe, and keep officers safe in their work, can you do all three of those things? Yes, Yes, as long as we have uh, the, the the system of checks and balances that operates properly, right? So, for example, in my field, when it comes to people being able to sue and, as a result, keep government officials accountable, um, it's it's great when courts are the ones that are looking at whether the law was violated and then ordering a remedy for the individual. But then it is absolutely up to the political legislative branches to look at whether there need to be some protections implemented through laws that would protect police officers, for example. If everybody does what they're supposed to do, then we can actually have a win-win-win situation. I think Anya's right. I think the structures are there to deliver on all three of those, the principles of of police accountability are are well known. You know, that starts with, you know, good recruitment and selection of officers, train them properly, supervise them, hold them accountable when they make mistakes. We've known that for decades. If you're the chief of police, you have to deliver on that. Samuel, what about you? Is that a fair framing? I think one of the things that's most uh, interesting uh, about this issue is that, you know, when you look from the perspective of officer safety, Use of force incidents are situations where officers are often injured as well. I mean, the number one uh, form of police contact in the United States is traffic stop. If you travel outside the United States, I mean, there are many, many countries, whether it's South Korea, Italy, where you know you could drive for hours and hours and never see a police officer on the roads. They have a completely different system where, in many cases, they have automated enforcement. They don't find it necessary um, for somebody with a gun to intervene in your life for you know running a stop sign or having a broken taillight or having you know an air freshener hang from your rearview mirror. And you know at the end of the day, you know there are a range of different alternative approaches to some of these issues. Many of which are now being piloted and scaled up successfully. Data is starting to come in from some of these approaches, like in San Francisco, where they're sending. Uh, mental health professionals uh, to crisis calls instead of the police. Um, they're doing the same thing in Portland, in New York. They they announced a program, although it hasn't really scaled. So so again, I think there's a win-win here where by finding and, and funding and scaling alternatives um, that can successfully intervene and, and resolve and de-escalate situations without the need for police, fundamentally ad- addressing the underlying uh, root cause issues that are continue to perpetuate this issue. Also, for all three of you, as we wrap up, what do you think the movement for Black Lives over the past, let's call it a decade, has done that other social movements before that didn't do um, that has made any, that has shifted a conversation around policing or awareness of policing? And the answer maybe could be nothing. Um, but do you, do, you, do you think something different happened in the course of this movement from the perspective of somebody doing the work, Anya? I think, uh, yes. Uh, the movement has been very effective in communicating its ideas, and it's also been helped by the time and place of this moment, right? It's not only body cameras, but it's also citizens with phones being able to record uh, what's happening. Uh, I think, for example, with George Floyd, what really resonated is that video where uh, people were just, you know, they stopped what they were doing and they watched this horrible thing happen. Nobody had to tell them that. They saw it for themselves. And that's a really, really important part of um, uh, kind of the change of our, in our thinking. And and to that effect, there's actually a very important case that is trying to get up to the Supreme Court right now. And that's whether police officers can prevent you as a citizen from recording uh, 
their interaction with the suspect. So that that could very much affect that. But I do think that uh, BLM has been an incredibly effective messenger, and also this place and time is helping the message to go farther. Yeah. Professor Mike. Yeah, I agree. Uh, because of all the other things that that have been happening, it's it's hard to disentangle and say that you know Black Lives Matter is responsible for this or that. But I, I you know, I agree with Anya. I think you know they provide they have provided a, a very powerful, consistent, collective voice uh, that that demands uh, attention. And you know, I know chiefs of police that that view Black Lives Matter as as uh, valuable partners now. Samuel, thinking back to you as that 24-year-old um, uh, who saw George Zimmerman getting acquitted and thinking, oh man, this could have been me. The movement that has grown up since then, um, and here I want to be clear, I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter, the organization. I mean this the larger movement for Black Lives in this conversation. What what about that is it what about that was a fundamental shift um, if you saw one? Uh, in in the work of reforming police, so I think that you know over the past decade there has been a fundamental shift in the conversation, such that now it has become almost undeniable um, that that police violence is real, that it is disproportionately impacting Black and Brown communities, especially Black communities, and that you know this is something that is is bigger than any one two or three you know quote unquote bad apple officers or one two or three problematic police departments that this is uh, an issue that is much closer to home than i think uh many people especially people in in, in communities in power and privilege were aware of and were willing to admit uh, a decade ago that this is something that is happening in your city in your state not just you know in on tv in minneapolis that the shift in the conversation has also produced some real tangible seeds of progress. Um, not wholesale shifted, I think, the 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 bottom line indicator of you know how many people are being harmed or killed by the police. Um, but I do think that there have been some important seeds of progress that that set us up for the next phase of the conversation. We will have to leave it with that. All three of you, thank you for your work and thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. And you can hear a longer version of this conversation at the New Yorker Radio Hour. Check them out also wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Kalalia at the Radio Hour for producing our police reform segment. Mike Kutchman was our engineer this week. The music, as always, by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Suzanne Gabber, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>